0: the concept behind Milemarker is we're going to take all the, the data from the best of breed tools. We're going to centralize it into one place that the firm owns. So stop trying to get these other third-party tools to integrate in a way you want them to, and stop waiting on their roadmaps to meet your roadmap, but have them integrate to you. You have all of the data from these systems now, and you can build your own, you know, your firm's uh, unique Michelin style experience on top of that. The one for advisors to create advice the one for the operations team to execute advice and you're creating a better experience all the way around.
1: Welcome, everybody. You're listening to Alternative Universe, a show for financial advisors, fund managers, and those who want to navigate the diverse landscape of alternative investments and explore opportunities that lie beyond the conventional. Now, when it comes to the discussion about wealth management and building an infrastructure to scale, there's no better authority on the trends in our industry than our guest today. Kyle Van Pelt is the CEO of MileMarker, a firm focused on helping advisory firms streamline operations, workflows, and level up the advisor experience. Kyle, welcome to Alternative Universe. Thanks for having me, man. It's a pleasure. Glad to be here. It really is. You know, Kyle, you've been, I think, I don't know, mainstay, and and you know I use the word authority here, but I haven't been a big Twitter fan, but I think you're one of the original four fintwits, right? You've built this culture, I think, around the wealth management industry that um, you know I admire and I appreciate. I think it's brought in a, a new level of openness and friendship and discussion around how we can improve this industry that really didn't exist before yeah. this kind of cohort. So, you know, I'm really excited to have you on and hear more of your story. Yeah, thanks, man. I appreciate that. I think
0: you know I. Like you, in a lot of ways, got my start in this industry in the you know in a partnerships role. And the whole mandate of partnerships is figuring out how to make one plus one equal three to use a cheesy analogy, but well, yeah. maybe a better one is you know how do you make a rising tide lift all boats? Because everybody wants to improve what the industry looks like. Everybody has a different take or thought on how that should happen. But getting together and making it happen tends to be better than you know doing it in a silo or in a vacuum.
1: Yeah, no doubt. I mean, partnerships has really been, you know, obviously you, you came into this industry that way, but I mean, talk about thriving as an industry. It's really opened up these single point solutions to work together. And really, I guess, I guess what I'm looking for here is work together to specialize in what they're really good at and not have yeah. to do everything at once. Right. And that's been huge. I mean, the beneficiaries of that are financial advisors who have more choice and, and are able to work in an ecosystem. The, of tech providers that collaborate with one another rather than are always competing where it's where it feels like a zero-sum type game.
0: I think that's right. I think too, if you look at what's happened in the space, you know, over the past 10 years, maybe more, wealth management might seem simple on the surface, but it's gotten very complex underneath. There's a lot of things going on. Michael Kitsis has talked about this a lot where everybody thought fee compression was going to come, right? You know, if if you're just doing whatever, you're not going to be able to get the same fees anymore. We haven't seen that, but what we've seen is an expansion of services in order to keep the same fee. So it's kind of like fee compression by a different name. Um, And so when you have advisors now that are trying to help with tax planning and estate planning and stock option planning and all of these sort of different things, you need a lot of different tools for that. You need specialized tools. Whereas it wasn't that long ago that every advisor out there was helping find a client, maybe doing a plan with them and investing their money in a model or in some sort of portfolio allocation. You didn't need as many tools because it wasn't as quote unquote specialized. Maybe the types of clients you work with were specialized, but the actual execution wasn't that specialized. You want people who are hyper-focused on those problems, tax planning, for example, to be building really, really good tax planning solutions. You don't want somebody you know, doing that as their 10th priority just so that you can check the box.
1: Yeah, it's, it's not super helpful to have just like, a, I guess, a really beautiful front end on like a simple IRS ta- tax calculator that might be sitting on their, on their website, right? Yeah, I, I don't think so. You know, you were at Lightfield before, right? How long mm-hmm. did it take, Paul... To
0: develop all of the methodology and algorithms around, you know, the tax location stuff and everything that LifeField does. LifeField does that sort of one thing really, really, really well, applied a couple different ways. But how long did it take Paul to figure out the best way to do that?
1: Yeah, years and and years on top of an entire career. Right. 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 So yeah, so- years of developing
0: the actual product on top of an entire career of figuring out how to do that well. You know exactly. that's what I want if I'm an advisor telling people I'm going to give you great tax advice, right? Rather than no offense to anybody out there. But hey, advisors are doing tax planning now. Go build a tax module over there in our product so that you know it's it's an all in one solution. Outside of our space, it's the same thing of the reason why people use Stripe if you're starting some sort of different thing rather than just building your payment processor in your own app. There's so much that goes into having a nice elegant payment processor and all of the things underneath that. Why would you not let the company that has 1,500 people dedicated every single day to making payments great do the payment processing for you rather than like, I'm going to go hire what, you know, half a dozen engineers and say, figure out how to process payments on our platform. Which experience do you think is
1: going to be better? Yeah, no doubt. And to your point earlier, um, when we talk about wealth management and, and specifically RIAs and that independent, you know, niche of financial services, you know, it's growing, and the size of these firms are growing and the amount of AUM or the assets that they're managing, that they take responsibility or stewardship over is, uh, is becoming larger. For sake of using the wrong word, I would call that maturing, the industry growing and maturing, bringing all these pieces together, taking responsibility for the vendors that you work with, making sure that they work well together and that it's secure and everything else. It starts to become more of a responsibility of those firms. And now there's the money to actually back that up and take some responsibility for it, right? I think that's right.
0: I mean, I think for some reason I love food analogies. When I look at what's happening in the space right now, you have a lot of firms who are trying to create massive scale, and think about those as either chain restaurants or or, or franchised restaurants, right? If you're a, a platform where you're having an advisor come on or whatever, it's that's maybe the franchise model. If you're a wirehouse or a, you know, an enormous national firm, maybe that's like the the chain restaurant model or something like that. But if you're an independent RAA, you should really be trying to create maybe a you know a Michelin style restaurant experience for your clients or something. We are one location, you know, you come to our restaurant for the type of experience you're gonna get with us. And you're not going to get that type of experience at you know, uh, a Jersey Mike's or a Jimmy John's, they might give you a, a great meal, but you know, that's going to be the way that it is. And clients that are coming to independent RIAs now, I think are looking for that type of specialized experience and service for, for lack of a better term. You know what you're gonna get if you go to a big national firm or something like that. I think the independent RIAs really have a chance to stand
1: out and build a Michelin star experience with what they're doing. So let's, let's continue on that thread. Um... Yeah, tell us a little bit about how MileMarker works with firms to you know, curate or create this Michelin-style experience.
0: We are big believers in this concept of uh, what we call you know, a synthesis platform, for lack of a better term. And, and the reason why is everything I just said. You should go to the best-of-breed solutions for the specific problems you're trying to solve. Best-of-breed for tax location, like a life yield. Uh, or tax planning like a Holista plan, go down the line, right? You should be you should be using the best tools that you can find. Um, however, nobody likes the experience of having to log into 15 different things. And we also are big believers too that there is a difference between uh, advice creation, sitting with a client, hearing them, empathizing with them, and creating advice in the concept of a plan, and then advice execution. So, Hey, I came out of this meeting with my client. These are the four decisions that we made on the advice that's going to be delivered. Now, you have an operations team or you have a team behind you at most of these firms that are going to actually go implement that advice. They're going to trade the portfolio. They're going to open the accounts. They're going to call a custodian. They're going to do that. The tools that the operations team is going to be using should be different than the tools that the advisor and the client are using. But yet, all of the tools, whether they're best of breed or not, have been built with the idea in mind that the advisor is going to sit with the client, create all of the advice, and then go execute all of it themselves. And I think the concept behind MileMarker is we're going to take all the, the data from the best of breed tools. We're going to centralize it into one place that the firm owns. So stop trying to get these other third-party tools to integrate in a way you want them to, and stop waiting on their roadmaps to you know meet your roadmap, but have them integrate to you. You have all of the data from these systems now, and you can build your own you know your firm's uh, unique Michelin-style experience. On top of that, the one for advisors to create advice, the one for the operations team to execute advice, and you're creating a better experience all the way around. So no more needing seven tabs open when a client calls, not having to manage a bunch of different logins and dealing with all the headaches there. Uh, that's the the whole concept. Um, we think it's pretty innovative, and you know we're, we
1: like it. That's why we're doing it. But uh, <laughs> yeah. That, yeah, that's the idea. Yeah. Yeah. Most definitely, man, and and you know, just to kind of put that in context, uh, you and I have both played roles at various companies where we build out these partnerships. Where integrations between vendors is often a thing that comes up when you're sitting with a client. Man, I wish you could pass this data over here, and whether it's just data or help me move between the systems more easily, or embed different components of your system in this other system. And when we think about it, when you're a young startup and you're just entering the space and you don't have a ton of clients that you're servicing. So, I mean, those are game changing. That's game changing advice, building those integrations and helping you, helping you be very relevant in the conversation. But as you grow, which as a financial advisor, if you're making the investment to, to work with these newer vendors, you, you hope that they grow. You want them to be yes. around. Well, as the vendor, all of a sudden I'm go from servicing a hundred clients where 10 of them told me they needed this integration and I built it immediately. Yeah. Now I have a thousand. Now I need a hundred people. To come and tell me they need that integration. And none of them really agree on exactly what the integration should do. That's where I see my being game changing It's like, take control of that, right? Take control yes. of that, of your desire, what you want, the experience you want to provide.
0: There's probably two or three things there that I think are underlying foundational concepts, which is for better, or for worse, enterprise value is tied to people using your platform, right? So most of these partners that you're working with Derive their value from you logging into their system and actually utilizing it every single day. For some reason, this space has not adopted many of what the rest of the world would call like an API first startup, right? So Stripe, everybody knows about Stripe. They are an API first startup. You don't log into Stripe to process payments, right? They embed themselves in other things. It's not super prominent in this space for one reason or another. So everybody wants you to be in their platform. So then the integration strategy is how do I get this other company to integrate with us, not for us to integrate with them? Because we don't want advisors not coming into our system anymore because our value is over there. So that's a huge piece of like a headwind that you're fighting. Uh, Number two, just a a reality, is integrations are cost centers for most fintech companies. They're not revenue centers, right? So you only have so much engineering resources. You only have so much engineering time. You want that engineering time going to feature development and product development that is, you know, adding value to the product. Integrations break all the time, uh, APIs change, things happen. So you have to have a team that is that is spending all of this. But it but it's not, you know, if you're a, a planning tool, you're not going to get new a, new clients because you have a, a certain integration, or they're not going to leave the planning tool they're using because of an integration. It's it's almost a table stakes cost center strategy for most of these people. So that's a difficulty. They're not going to invest in a certain type of integration pathway for you because you're one who wants it. Like you're saying, maybe if a hundred people come and say, this is exactly how we want the integration to work, they'll spend the time. And then third as a whole is just advisors should be able to control their innovation timeline, right? You know, you shouldn't be sitting with your hands tied, waiting for things to happen because, you know, for lack of a better term, and listen, uh, Milemarker is is in the same boat as this. Our roadmaps are all uh, miles and miles long, right? So it might be on the roadmap, uh, but that roadmap might be might be a very long roadmap. And so for you, the advisor, um, that data is yours. No matter who the third party person is, they will send you that data if you have the infrastructure to receive it. And once you have that data, you can do whatever you want with it. And so I think those are just some of the big things that are happening is if you're waiting around for integration to happen, you're going to be waiting longer than you want to be. Um, but you can take control of that without having to go hire your own engineering team. I think that's the the big thing. I think that's honestly what's kept many firms from doing this in the first place is, you know, hey, we don't want to have an engineering or technology team. We don't want to have to go get all this cloud infrastructure. We don't want to have to manage all of that stuff. Well, you don't have to anymore and you can still get the result.
1: Yeah, no doubt. I mean, you and I were just both at, um, you know, T3. Yeah. The 20th anniversary. Shout out to uh, Joel Brockenstein and Bob Veres. You know, that 20th anniversary, I was kind of looking for a theme across vendors and you struck a chord. And what I found is that a lot of the portfolio management systems out there that were talking about enhancing new features, a lot of them were also talking about making it easier for firms to work with the data. You know, this is a trend across the industry. It's your point, building out these integrations and supporting them on behalf of the advisors on those platforms is a cost center. So it's much yeah. easier for them to invest in saying, hey, we're going to make it easier for you to control your data and build out your own user experience. And so finding a partner to help you do that rather than having to build out a team on your own is a big jump to it's the huge. front of the line, right?
0: It is. And I, you know, I would also say too, as a shout out to, to things like Altruist and some of these other things, if you're a smaller firm, just starting out, there's really great options for you now to have a pretty nice experience. And if you're a firm that is growing and maybe you're trying to grow through acquisition or you're just scaling in a big way, you want to have that differentiation and and still use best of breed tools. And so how do you stand out? And it's exactly what you just described. Like, I want to have my own experience, but I don't want to build all of it. You know, what one of the things a firm told us the other day that has been building a lot of technology themselves is, man, we've been able to kind of control the experience, but we're not able to benefit from... The innovation of a lot of other firms, right? So when you work with somebody that that works with those thousand firms, those thousand firms are providing feedback, they're making the product better, they're doing all of that stuff. That's the value you get when you just buy software off the shelf. The value you get when you build it yourself is complete flexibility. You can make it whatever you want. Um, but you're kind of on an island. You're responsible for product management, for innovation, for maintenance, for all of that. I think now, not just through us, but through other potential partners, you get the, the best of both. You know, It's a hybrid solution, but you get the best of both buying and building to make it your own. And that's just it. I think that is the theme at T3. I think that's something a lot of people are pushing on is how do we make it uniquely us? And, and you and I've talked about this a bunch. I think a lot of people have. Building solutions in this space is always unique because... Every RAA, every wealth management firm, not just RAs, has to do the same things. You have to open client accounts. You have to do RMDs. You have to do suitability. A lot of the nuts and bolts are the same for every advisory firm. So let's call it 80, 90% of the work that you do is the same. What can you do with that 10 to 20% to truly make yourself stand out and be different from the firm down the street? So there's a lot of people investing a lot of money in that 10 to 20% to really showcase their differentiation. And I think now it's truly possible
1: to do that. Right. I mean, what do they say? And I'm probably going to butcher this quote, but, um, you know, brand recognition is what people say about you when you're not in the room, yeah. right? That like brand. And um, that's that 10 to 20% experience. That's what your clients, that's where referrals come from. It's generally not those, you know, run of the mill activities that you're going to, that you just have to do. Oh yeah, man, my RA opened this account for me. It was the best account opening. So stoked 100%. on how they opened my account. Yeah, but they will tell you when it was a bad one. Uh, Fair, enough. Fair yeah. enough. I think, too,
0: just in, you know, I want to hear you talk about this a little bit, but how the space is always evolving and changing, right? So mm-hmm. some things stay the same, but then some things change. So you guys on, on the Mammoth side are really involved with alternatives. And that mm-hmm. conversation, I feel like, is trending in a significant... Everybody's talking about alts, right? I, I think we were with a pretty large firm, like tens of billions of dollars in assets the other day, and they said they have a mandate to get 30% of client portfolios in, in some form of alternative investments because of you know, potential alpha, potential whatever, right? Like it's just alternatives are coming. But there's a mm-hmm. whole new string of technology, best of breed solutions being built to, to help with alternative investments and alternative ops. So you're just creating even more silos that need to be wrangled for lack of a better term. Um, but yep. everybody's running down that path. So, you know, curious to hear your thoughts on that, of like how things change so quickly. And
1: now all these firms are like, oh, I guess we got to figure out how to handle alts. Yeah, hundred percent. And, uh, you know, I don't think it's actually new, the alts. And when I say alts, let's talk about private markets specifically, but in the private markets where, um, you know, these aren't publicly available investments, you know, alts is a pretty big umbrella. So I'm just going to carve out the stuff that's publicly available. And when you think of the private market, that the size of that market is growing, it's grown, and it's been growing for a long time. So these deals are happening, your clients are investing in, in private opportunities, either with or without you. And so when people talk about it being a hot dot, I think there's a lot of trends um, that come and go. And there's a lot of hype around the performance of alts. And then we've seen this whole model around the, you know, the institutional side of the world. And we have these endowments, right, that have adopted this new asset allocation, including alts. But when it comes to the advisory firms, it's really difficult because it doesn't scale. It's hard to scale. There's no mandate. There's no normal structure. All the forms have different formatting, right? It's hard to gather them. It's hard to be in the know. Most of the time when these private deals happen, it's between the investor and the GP or the company. So it's hard for an advisor to stay involved in that conversation. And so to your point, exactly what we've seen from our view at Mammoth is that a lot of service providers are doing really innovative stuff, but a lot of them are very point solutions. And in order to stitch those together, the firms have to take responsibility. And you see large family offices doing it. You see large multifamily offices. But most of it, when it comes to the RAAs, you really need to be north of $10 billion before it makes you know, financial sense for you to take responsibility of doing that. Just because of so the-, the operational load? Yeah, it's because of the operational load and re- if you want to control the experience and be in the know and stitch together all these point solutions and manage all the different platforms that are doing, you know, what they can to improve access and build out fund to funds. And, you know, you hear it. You hear the iCapitals and Cases of the World, Opto's a new one. These are places where you can go and get exposure and access to awesome investments. But when it comes to managing the back end and that client relationship on an ongoing basis, now you have to bring in more point solutions in order to bring all the paperwork together and get it into your portfolio management system and have fee billing that's accurate and performance reporting that includes all these um, new things. And for a lot of firms, we find that it's unapproachable. Tackling that to your point, um, how do we streamline that? How do we create that operational efficiency for them? Um, How do we make it so that when their clients are out there making these deals that they can still be at the center of that transaction, help their client and uh, be in the know rather than always just kind of hoping things work out? Yeah,
0: I, I mean, I think that I think that makes sense. I also think there's these huge due diligence teams, like at uh, at large mm-hmm. platforms, for you know, can certain fund managers, even outside of alts, right, like public fund fund managers, go yeah. onto platforms, right? And that's with you know, ETFs and stuff where people are, for the most part, buying the same companies, same public stocks. I, I actually think the due diligence lift for private investments is significantly higher because there's so much to vet and do, and that's that's a huge operational lift as well. Not not every private investment is Sequoia uh, or right. you know Kleiner Perkins or Blackstone. There's a lot of small stuff out there that you have to you have to dig in and do the work on.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that information is just it's not as prevalent. It's not as easy to come by. So, you know, again, one of the things that we try and help our partners with is we have due diligence partnerships that are integrated into our platform. You can actually have one click access requesting due diligence on an opportunity that maybe even a client brings to you. This happens all the time. Some of those bigger, bigger partnerships that have these big due diligence opportunities are great, but you're not going to see a venture fund that's raising 50 million on there. You know, by the yeah. time the due diligence is done, the funds full and closed. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so some of these things, when it's a good opportunity, you need to move a little bit quicker. And so we partner with firms and make those available to our partnerships. You know, I think it's all in the same spirit of what Mile Markers building and what we've, what we've kind of collaborated on to this point, which is you know, you're in control of this stuff. Take control of the data. Yeah. Take control, build the experience you want. And, and then that way you can scale. 100%. I mean, that's awesome. I heard, uh, you know, at, at T3, actually, I heard Joe Duran speak, but he talked about this, um, the most underserved client demographic is the five to $15 million client. And, uh, you know, at $15 million, you're at the bottom end of being a good, like a private wealth prospect. But when you're over five and you're working with an RAA, the RAA is still trying to fit you into this box and they treat you the same way a $1 million client gets treated. Really when you get from five to 15 million, those clients start to expect things that might not necessarily scale and you have to do work. And a lot of that is what he's pointing at is like these alternative investments, these opportunities. And so it's on the firms really to set up an infrastructure where they can grow with their clients and be able to provide these services and do it profitably. No one's asking. Anybody to take a loss, right? We just have to have the systems in place so that we know we know how to make money on this. And I think our clients want us to make money. They want a lifetime yeah. partnership, right? Hundred percent. First of all, Joe
0: Duran is an incredible speaker, super dynamic speaker. Um, love listening to that guy give talks. Second, I, I, you know, it's interesting. I had breakfast the other day with a, an advisor who was talking about it. You know, I don't think I don't know if you heard Joe's talk or or what the deal was, but the same thing of you know at their firm, anybody who's in that realm that you just talked about is the hardest to serve. Um, because even though they have lots of assets, I do think it really puts pressure on the profitability because of all of the expectations they have. That's an interesting space because the, the other thing too though is, I actually think, I don't know what the data is on this, so I could be completely wrong, but I think that's one of the fastest growing segments too because there's a lot of these people, like baby boomers and stuff, like selling businesses right now as they're going into retirement that was illiquid for a long time. And all of a sudden they're, you know, they're falling in that realm of wealth and and they are expecting certain things and there's not a lot of firms out there to serve those people. It's an interesting problem to solve for a lot of RAs because again, if you're built, if you've built your firm, no disrespect to any of these restaurants, but if you've built your firm to be an Applebee's, you know, or a Chili's, or something like that, right? And you can't just all of a sudden start serving people who are looking for you know high end experience. Uh, yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see how that unfolds.
1: You know, another big another big topic that comes up quite often is this generational, as, as you were just mentioning, you know, this wealth that's going to be handed down to the next generation. And I keep hearing over and over again, these stats of uh, when the next generation inherits wealth, how like 90% of the time they leave their financial advisor. And I'm just, I have no idea what the number is. I'm just throwing that out. sure Yeah. I was talking to a friend of mine. He's our age. He's working with the financial advisor of his grandfather. And I asked him, how's that going? And he's like, I love it. I love it. He's helped me. He goes, he, he's not managing a ton of wealth for me, but he is helping me with a financial plan. He's helping me allocate my income in the appropriate buckets. And he gave me an idea of how much the advisor is managing for him. What his grandfather did is he had this financial advisor give all of his grandchildren the basis point price break that he had earned with his net worth. So my buddy's paying you know this discounted rate that he wouldn't qualify for because he doesn't have enough money. This advisor is not doing this out of like the kindness of their heart, building a relationship with the next generation and the people who are going to inherit the wealth that he's managing for the grandfather. You look at it, it seems so simple, but it's genius. And my buddy's going to stick with that advisor. See,
0: that's super interesting because the chances of me working with the advisor that my parents work with is about zero. And he's tried reaching out a couple of times to get to know me or anything like that, but just it's... Mm -hmm. There was no sort of value add around it, right? I guess. Right. And that's, that's where we're at is, you know, there's there's a lot of value out here. So I think the generational wealth transfer is a really interesting topic of discussion in our space too, because mm-hmm. the timing on when all of it's going to happen, what that's going to look like, you know, all of that stuff is really interesting. And I just think... Maybe a bombastic statement, but generationally, I think like millennials and younger want such drastically different things than the, you know, than like our, the parents generation above them did. I mm-hmm. mean, obviously you want, you know, a lot of the same core things like you want housing and you want all of these sort of things, but like what they're looking for out of life is so different. And I don't know if the same advisor who served your parents is going to be able to to serve that next generation in the same way. It's a, I don't know. It remains to be seen, but it's going to be very interesting to see how that unfolds.
1: Yeah. No, I agree. You know, I think more and more we see team-based approach but also consistency and experience, you know, the type of software and the experience that these firms and teams can approach and share looking and feeling more modern, you know, being more attractive to a younger clientele. Yeah. Um it it is interesting how it's going to unfold and I think it either way it's going to. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right. Yep. I mean, either way it's going to, I don't think we're going to run into a generation of, you know, young people who inherit a bunch of money and just go out and buy Ferraris and then like, yeah you know, what if we no did savings. That? What,
0: if, what if everybody just, just like takes all of this generational wealth transfer and just consumes all? You just see everybody rolling around because, because you know, one thing I've found really interesting just uh, on that note, I said that as a joke, but I heard Josh Brown say this the other day. It's like one of the hardest things he has to do as an advisor is he has all these clients who have been bashed over the head for 20, 30 years about how important it is to save. And he's like, they've got it, right? They've figured out you got to save some money. And he's like, and now none of them know how to spend it. Right. They're mm-hmm. all, they're all so anxious and filled and riddled with panic about if I spend that money, it's not gonna, I'm I'm gonna outlive it or whatever. And uh, it's like, you can totally go spend some of this money. And so I, I think now you have younger people almost hearing this like, hey, you gotta enjoy it a little bit while you're young too. Like, don't don't save all of it for retirement. You know, books like Die with Zero are really great about some of this stuff, and you know, it will be interesting to see if people who receive these these big wealth transfers, uh, if they consume a lot more of it and approach it differently rather than just storing it up for a rainy day.
1: It's really good. I think it's also really important. I just I read a quote earlier today, and it was just like two simple lines: "We spend time to make money, and we spend money to make more time."
0: Yeah. There you go.
1: It's this circular sickness that most of us find ourselves in where we, you know, we're using all this time to try and make money and then we're just using that money to spend it on someone to mow my lawn because I don't have time to mow my lawn, right? Or, or whatever all the services that you start to compile because you're too busy to do it. And um, sometimes it's good to take a step back and be like, all right, let's reprioritize here.
0: What Um, what do you think happened that got us there? It didn't used mm. to be like that. Is it? Everybody's trying to chase some level of, of wealth, you know, of some sort. Or do you think social media made us all, you know, see these lifestyles that we're all coveting and chasing after? And, you know, we're all having to work harder to try and get it. Do you think the standards went up at, at jobs to be able to keep decent jobs? You just have to work more like what, what changed? Cause I'll just say my parents lived what I would call a pretty darn quality life. Mm-hmm. Um, And they worked hard. Don't get me wrong. But it wasn't it wasn't like what you're describing. You know, right. they always had time to do yard projects and, you know, and spend time with me and be where we needed to go and all of that sort of stuff. So I don't know. What do you think changed?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that there are a lot of components to it. But if I had to put my finger on a few, I'd say access to information. We have so much more information than you know, our parents' generation did at our age. And so, to your point, whether it's social media or or anything, we have more access to information. And therefore, I feel like, at least I know I am, I'm a lot harder on myself. I'm a lot more judgmental of myself. I'm always thinking about what I should be doing. And, um, you know, a lot of that does come back to comparing ourselves to what we think it ought to be. I don't think that's the healthiest, you know, across society. I think we could all say that that's probably not the healthiest. And, I, for one, I seek out opportunities to kind of bring me back to the present. And just like the quote I mentioned earlier, I think most of us that would consider ourselves entrepreneurial or small business owners, you know, we're trying to like put our money to work, you know, put your money to work so that you can, you know, take the time and and relax. But I met a guy two years ago here on the South shore of Boston, whose name happened to be Steve. He was about 20 years older than I am. He had live fast tattooed on his knuckles. And he was like this hot rod guy. He had been diagnosed with Parkinson's when he was in his early forties and he was always into like motorcycles and cars and stuff. And he was sharing with me how like, you know, Parkinson's had slowly taken everything that he taken his ability to participate in the things he loved away from him. And we were at a car show and I saw him with this car. He told me how his son and him had built that car. And then his son drove the car to this car show and he was standing around, hanging out, talking to people, but couldn't drive anymore. You know, it's a good reminder. I sat there and I talked with him and, and, um, good reminder to sometimes, Hey, opportunity comes up, take it now, go say yes. You know, whether it's the trip or if it's the car thing that you love, I mean, be reasonable, but yeah, I might want to do it later, but I might not physically be able to being able to afford it is only one thing, right?
0: I will say that's one of the interesting blessings about being in this space. I've talked to so many financial planners who have shared stories of clients who saved and saved and saved and saved. And then, you know, like the day they retired, some catastrophic thing happened, right? You know, Mm -hmm. whether it's... Somebody got cancer and you know they had three months to live after and you know they didn't get to enjoy it or hmm. they never took that trip and then they their health wouldn't allow them to or whatever like you don't hear that if you work in different industries so one nice blessing is like I've heard these stories from financial advisors where it's like you got to be smart you got to take care of the future but also yeah you got to you got to say yes along the way because um, yeah. you're not guaranteed anything like it's not like uh, retirement age is some magical oh okay you made it now everything's going to be available for you
1: yeah no exactly and and you know on a less extreme example you know I think most of the people in our audience are leaders in general you know whether it's a leader within their firm or a leader in their community or in their industry and it, it really does flow down you know and I think it's our responsibility to model that for the people that are listening to this podcast or the people on our teams or whatever like we have to take the time you know and I you know you and I both have families and we we cherish our our children and our spouses and you know, it doesn't need to be the big the big car or whatever. It can also just be like, hey, what I'm gonna take time to like play catch with my child. Yes. Or you know, coach the team or whatever. And I'm gonna make that time because that is just and equally as valuable as the maybe the money I'm gonna earn at work or whatever the alternative is and really looking at it as currency. I and love it that. needs to be modeled by our leadership, you know. So
0: I appreciate way, that I was, you,
1: Kyle. You always remind me of that. Minute.
0: I, I appreciate that. I, I try hard, and I think it's because of our industry. So I was getting ready to say, "Man, how did how did we go from a conversation talking about wealth management and technology and stuff to this sort of philosophical life stuff?" But you know, it, I, I realized like a lot of these things that we're talking about, I learned because of financial advisors, you know, who mm-hmm. I've talked to. So yes, there's technology challenges and synthesis challenges and alternatives challenges, but. You know, I've never forgotten this. Jim Bowen, who's the founder of First Trust, the asset management. He always starts every talk I've ever heard him give. He says, "Financial advice is a noble profession. Don't let anybody tell you that it's not." And and he says to the advisors in the room, "You're noble people. You're helping people achieve their dreams and their goals." And uh, a lot of these things, these philosophical things that we've talked about, they come from other places. But I've really learned. Uh, to think about them and frame them because of a lot of the advisors that I've had the pleasure of talking to over, uh, you know, over the past decade or so. Um, yep. So all of these things we're talking about are intertwined, and uh, I think
1: it's cool. Yep. No, I think I think our industry is right there. We're at the intersection, yep. and so if there's anybody that's um, having these conversations on a regular, and if you're sitting there struggling with your tech, <laughs> makes it more difficult for you to actually have these conversations. And remind our clients that hey, you should spend some of the things that you. Some of the money you've saved, or take the time to enjoy your family. Hundred percent, man. Well, Kyle, man, I really appreciate you being on the show. We we burned up a good chunk of time here, and I'd love to uh, if you have any takeaways that you want to leave with our audience before we sign off. You know, just about mile Mark or the industry in general.
0: Yeah, uh, a couple big takeaways. I know we talked about it before, but that I would share is number one: if you're an RIA listening to this, or you own your firm whether it's with my own or somebody else, you should absolutely own your data and you should be able to own and control your own roadmap and your innovation. Don't be always waiting on other people's timelines. I think that's a huge trend that we're seeing in the industry and it's one that you should take advantage of. Number two, piggybacking on that. The reason why you wanna do that is not just so you can create your own experience, but because the industry is changing as fast as it is. Um, look at alternatives as an example. You want to be able to have infrastructure and platform to scale as fast as you want to scale, but also to be able to adapt to change as it comes into the fray here. So those are the two big ones. And then the last one is you yourself and your clients, make sure that you're not always saving for a rainy day, um, but you're taking time to enjoy the finer things of life.
1: Awesome! Thanks a ton, Kyle. And thank you, everybody. Yeah, thank you, everybody, for listening to this episode of Alternative Universe. This podcast is brought to you by Mammoth Technology and produced by Turncast. If you like the show, consider sharing it with a friend or a colleague. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this episode right now. For more information about Mammoth Technology and Alternative Universe, visit us at mammothtechnology.com. Everything discussed on this podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered advice. The participants may have financial interests in the companies discussed on the podcast.